Hi, this is Jason Lee, pastor at Casper Alliance Church. Thanks again for stopping by our weekly teaching podcast. This is week four of our series in the book of Titus, the letter written to the pastor Titus uh, from the Apostle Paul while he's serving on the island of Crete and planting churches and raising leaders. And so this whole series is about building the church from the inside out. What does it look like to build a church? We've been talking a little bit about that each week. Uh, this week, uh, I guess I got a little emotional, a little hyped, a little hypey, and I uh, uh, hope you enjoy. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at casperchurch.com. You can go to the Google Play Store or the Apple Store and download our app. Just search for Casper Alliance Church. Look for the double C's. Click download. It'll be on your phone, be on your tablet, it could be on your Kindle, and you can track us uh, on your handheld device. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Hey, worship team, I think, I think we're going to reprise, that's musical theater for anyone that cares, we're going to reprise uh, Come to the Altar at the end, I think. Okay, so just be ready, worship team, musical theater. Um, I'm going to start with a story. We're going to be in Titus again, but I'd like to start with a story. Hey, so I didn't sleep last night very much, maybe like an hour and a half. Am I out of screen? I should go over here. And that's when I shaved in the middle of the night because you make poor decisions when you... I'm just kidding. I shaved on purpose because I was tired of looking like the old guy in the church. But now I look like the kid. I asked... Miss Regina to shave my beard off, and she did. So let me, let me say this. Uh, when I start, I didn't sleep very well last night, not at all. Uh, and so I was up and down, and I don't know if it's just I'm drinking like a lot of water, but I was up and down going to the bathroom, like regularly. And this is, um, so it, I don't know, it's probably 3 in the morning, I think, when this happened. But I get back into bed. And I refused to, like, grab my, my phone or my iPad or anything. I, I was, like, trying to, like, just fall back asleep, but I couldn't. And this, is, this, is, uh, this was a little nerve-wracking to me. So I'm laying there in bed, and here's the question that comes to my mind. Am I really saved? Have, has anybody had those middle-of-the-night thoughts where you're like, am I really saved? Am I, if I were to die right now, would I go to heaven? And then all of a sudden, you start to Rolodex your life and think about all the sin that you've, you haven't confessed or I almost woke Adrienne up and I was like, I'm so sorry for being mean to you earlier in the day. I, I'm sorry that I spoke harshly at you. Like, I'm, my brain is starting to like cycle through all these things and failures. And, and it started with, um, in a few weeks, we're going to go down to the Grand Canyon. And we're going we're gonna to go look at the Grand Canyon at wintertime. I've heard that that's not the right time to do it, but there's not as many people, so we're going to do that. And, but we're going to go down there, and I, the way, we're going to drive, but the way that we have to go, we have to cross over, uh, is it the, the, the Continental Divide or something like that? Where we have to, and it's like kind of a, like not necessarily the greatest drive. I haven't told Adrienne about it until just now. <laughs> and... and and so I had this thought while I was laying there thinking, am I really saved? What if I were to drive my family off the mountain? Like, not on purpose, but like that were to happen. Because I have a tendency to be a distracted driver 
or um, a sleeping driver, or all of the above at the same time. And I had this like real panic, kind of like laying in the bed, feeling like, what if I were to drive off and then none of, none of my family knows Jesus because I've been a poor husband and a poor father and even worse, a bad pastor. Like this is the middle of the night thoughts that are happening. Some of it could be because I'm exhausted and, I'm tired. and I don't feel tired right now, but I was then. But then I kept thinking, like, what, what if I'm not saved? And I know that that's not a unique thought. And I, I didn't like plan to have those thoughts in the middle of the night so that I could have a sermon illustration today. But that question was like, it was, it was just persistent in my brain, and I couldn't sleep, and I didn't go back to sleep. I think I might have dozed off like around 6 to like 6.15, 6.30, and I really tried to get up at 6 on Sunday mornings and get here and just kind of like coast through the day. Like, you know, that morning time where it's just kind of quiet here and like allow my brain to settle, and it never settled at all. And I just kept thinking about it. What if I'm not saved? And why does God put that on my mind? Because clearly I know that I love Jesus. I've committed my life to Christ. I'm trying to follow him with my best that I can. He's changed so many things in my life. I know that I have salvation in him. And I, why, do I, why do I question that? Why did that even come to my brain? So, again, I don't think that's a unique question. I think the older you get, the less you question it. You, I mean, maybe not. Maybe I'm not... That's the first time that's happened in a while to me. But I remember being a teenager and a 20-year-old, and like, like that, was, that came up in my mind a lot. You know, I probably, I probably went to the front and got prayed for you know, 30 or 40 times. I've rededicated my life more than I've probably committed my life. <laughs> and so that's like, that's the cycle, I think, in teenage, you know, when you're young, because you're like, it's just you don't have enough life and you haven't had enough people speak into your life and you haven't had enough pastoral leadership or disciplers, or people that are walking with you, or small groups that you're involved in, that are just encouraging you, and affirming you, and, and pouring into you, and praying over you, to where you really truly sense God's presence in your life, and His, and, and his movement, and the, and the way He's pushing you, and the way He's shaping you. And so at a young age, like you drift a lot, right? And that's why our teenagers and young adults, they get into trouble, because they're drifting, they're trying to figure it out. But at 44, in the middle of the night, I was like, Whoa. So, have that in your mind. Because it, it bothered me and it stuck with me all morning. What, what does that mean for us? Because I know I'm saved. But why is, why is that question? And so I think the question that we're going to end up at the end is I'm going to ask you, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Hear the text. This is Titus chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Yesterday, Caleb asked me what I was preaching on, and I, I said, I'm preaching on, uh, I think I said 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. I'm like, he, and he says to me, he goes, I, I thought we were in Titus. And I'm like, oh, I, man, I have so much going on in my brain. Like, I have no idea what we're doing tomorrow. He's like, he looks at me like, you really don't know what you're doing tomorrow? And like, that's kind of a household joke. Like, you know, if I need five hours alone, I say, I got to go prep a message. Because leave me alone. Okay, Titus 2, listen to this text. Listen to the verses here. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. 
I'm going to say this again. I'm going to repeat myself probably too much this morning. If you ever want to know what it's like to be a Jesus follower, that's your verse right here. We are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave His life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us His very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have authority to correct them when necessary. So don't let anyone disregard what you say. If you want a definition of the Gospel, it's sitting right here in this text. Verse 14, He gave His life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us His own people. Amen. Totally committed to doing good deeds. That's the Gospel. Now, what does it have for us this morning? This is a powerful, powerful, packed set of Scriptures. But it's all about salvation. It's all about knowing Jesus and the work that Jesus did on the cross so, the word, that phrase that I say that I've been trying not to say, so that you can live a life on earth that's counter-cultural, that's different, that stands out, that is owned by the Savior. Okay, so let's get into it just a little bit. There's three things, I think, maybe four that I have for you. And this is, I don't talk about grace very often, the word grace. But this is, if we go back to verse 11, the grace of God has been revealed. God's grace has been shown to us. Now, the reason I don't talk about grace very often is because I associate it, and this is my own problem, I associate it with spiritual weakness. That I just accept God's grace. That I'll just pray for forgiveness. Kind of like what I was doing at 3 in the morning. Just praying for God's grace, please cover me. I'm filled with sin. So I don't talk about it very often. And, and I don't know why other than like I, I kind of associate it, I guess, with the get of jail free card. God's grace. And at, at the core of it, if we go back to one of those original talks, I might be a legalist. And I might hold people accountable to living in a way that is just not fathomable. Because I'm like... No, you know Jesus, you should live right. But Paul tells the pastor Titus, the grace of God has been revealed to all and it's the grace of salvation for all people. God's grace, if you want to write things down, teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to live. There's no doctrine in Scripture more precious to us as humans in the doctrine of salvation. There's no belief system, anything that the Bible teaches that's more precious to the soul of humankind than salvation. This is the most important, most paramount, penultimate belief that we have is that by Christ's work on the cross, and our belief in His work on the cross, and our surrender and asking for forgiveness of our sin, and the, the belief and faith that He paid for that sin, they'll give us life 
eternal salvation is the, the doctrine that we care about. More than anything else. But this verse says God's grace has brought salvation to all. To everyone. To all people. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, again, I talk about this a lot, our denomination, we say, and this is if you're going to be involved in our church and want to know about our church, part of Casper 101 here is going to be talking about the Alliance, which will tell you what we believe. And there's, there's the, uh, the core values, and then there's the four full gospel, which we talk about. Can I get an applause from anyone for that? Wow. I still have fast hands. I can play third base in most places. Especially for the Mets, because they're awful. Um, in the Alliance, we have a core value. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. Salvation is for all people. But in our humanity, in our sinfulness, we distort that truth, and we, we change the theology, we change the doctrine, and I just want to take a second and walk us quickly through what we don't believe and what we do believe. In the school of theological thought, there's three basic views on salvation. There's universalism, which states that, that there's a plurality of ways to get to God. There are many, many possible paths, an unlimited number of ways to God. You hear that? You talk about that? Whatever's my truth, my belief, I'll get there. As long as I'm a good person, which actually lends into the second view, I'll get to God because there's so many ways to God. You can't tell me that there's only one way to God. Well... This is a, a prevailing like, bend of the truth that feels good. This is, again, the idea that all roads lead to God and therefore everyone will eventually be saved and make it to heaven. And this is popular among kind of progressive theologians, possible among modern day thinkers or postmodern theologies, that we all will get there. Love wins. In fact, the scripture says right here, salvation's been brought to all people. So all of us must be saved. We don't believe that. Well, I don't believe that. And in our church, I'm trying to teach us that we don't believe that. Okay? <laughs> the second kind of view of salvation is this inclusive idea that, that affirms that Jesus is the only Savior... And that it's possible to be saved by Jesus even though one may never personally encounter Christ or trust Him in salvation. I had a great conversation this last week about that. About what happens if you don't actually meet Jesus. What if you don't know? This is kind of the motivation behind our denomination that lost people matter to God. He wants them found. That's why we believe so much in missions. Let's send people to the ends of the earth. To find every last tongue and tribe so that we can introduce them to the name of Jesus. Romans teaches us that from the beginning of time, the book of Romans teaches from the beginning of time, you don't have an excuse. God has revealed Himself regularly through His qualities, through His character, and His people that Jesus is the way. So this idea of it, that, like, yeah, Jesus is the way, but do you really need to know him? That's kind of the inclusive view. And we don't I don't believe that. 
So what ha- how does this get played out in the, in the church? That all you need to do is be good. If you're just good, if you're good, you'll get saved because you know your character looks like that it's supposed to. Just do good things. Just be a good person. Now you see how that shapes and bends the truth of who Jesus is. And it makes it merit-based salvation. It's the exact opposite of grace. If I just do good things, I'll be part of the club. So, the inclusive salvation. Jesus is true, but there's lots of other ways if you're just good. Now, more of the orthodox evangelical view. It's, I call it the click view the exclusive view of salvation. It's held by our denomination. It's held by me and this church. That the teaching of salvation comes only through a personal relationship and faith commitment to Jesus Christ. That salvation only comes by the work of the cross. It's a commitment that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And it exclusively affirms the absolute uniqueness of who He is, the Son of God. And He is the finality of God's revelation in Him, the person of Christ. He is the one and only Savior. The cross of Christ is is God's testimony that Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. The exclusive way to heaven. Heaven is where the Father lives. God would not have sent His only Son to die on a cross if He could have saved us by some other means. The preaching of the good news, the Gospel, is how this great testimony is made to known for salvation throughout the world. That's our view of salvation. Jesus alone. Christ alone. His work alone. His grace alone. Jesus, Jesus only. Now why is that important? Because when we read this text, we read this text that says salvation has come to all people. And it confuses us at times, I think. Now us evangelicals who have just kind of walked and grown in the church, we just kind of go about it. We read it and go, yeah, for sure. Salvation's come to all people. That's why we're missionaries. That's why we like, that's why we talk about Jesus. Because salvation's here. It's for all people. But if it's if it's twisted, and if it's torn, it's like turned just a little bit, a degree off, all of a sudden our theology, our doctrine, and our path gets so far away from truth that we become false prophets. We become people who lead others astray. This is why I think I was up in the middle of the night because I have a responsibility to be a teacher of truth. I'm held at a little bit different accountability because I get a platform to speak and share the good news of Jesus. And if I'm wrong, and I lead all of you wrong, uh uh-oh, for me. So the grace of God, again, is that unmerited gift, that undeserved gift that we get in salvation. Through Him, Jesus Christ. And let's not mince words on that. Jesus alone. So when the Scripture talks about salvation, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about this. 
the cross of Christ and our belief in it and the work that was done on it and the resurrection that happened after it and our faith in that. That's salvation. So again, I'm asking the question in the middle of the night, God, am I saved? Am I saved? Yeah, I believe. I believe all of that. What haven't I confessed? Okay, start confessing. So the grace of God, again, will teach us how to live. It delivers us. It rescues us from its judgment. It's, uh, it's, um, it gives us a freedom to operate in a way to where we can continually point people to Jesus and not live under condemnation because we have received the grace of God. Has anybody ever lived with guilt on their shoulders? And just been like, oh, it's heavy. In Christianity, you know, and as we walk with the Lord, we do that also. We just walk with this heaviness. And it doesn't mean that we're supposed to just be free constantly and not have to worry and no care. But receiving the grace of God releases that heaviness when we have received salvation. The grace of God teaches us where we should look. Now here, let me go back to verse 12 real quick. I know I'm kind of all over the place. I'm just like, um, Verse 12, And when we instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures, we should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. How do you walk like a Christian? How do you walk like a, a person who's received the grace? We know that we have to live in this heavy, hard, difficult, trying world. We know that there's sin around us. I mean, I talked about it all morning. We can talk about it in every location. We're frustrated right now as people. And I'm not just talking our political side of the spectrum. I'm talking every side of every spectrum is frustrated right now. Because there's a heaviness in the world that I think people are really starting to go, whoa, this is not right. Which means, and don't make me make, me make weird predictions, that's not who we are, but revival is at the doorstep. And I really believe that. Because when there's brokenness and chaos and frustration and heaviness, people are ready to receive some good news. And that's why we're right there at the doorstep, which means the church has been positioned so well at this time, at this place, at this hour, to be a voice of how and where to look to receive God's grace. So we have to, we're required to live in this heavy world. This is Paul teaching his, his pastor Titus, the kid, to how do you lead in this crazy place in Crete where everyone's awful and the world stinks and it's horrible and they're Cretans of all people. Deplorable. They are deplorables. They're Walmart people. <laughs> you are positioned position Titus to lead these people and you have to live in a world a godless godless space teach them to live in this sinful world in a way that's fully devoted to God full of righteousness and with wisdom that's how you walk with Christ that's the walking with Jesus I don't know what wisdom looks like all the time here's what I know it's not it's not rattlesnake hunting 
It's not rattlesnake hunting, guys. No matter how silly that sounds and fun, it's not. There's nothing wise about that. I mean, us men, we do really foolish things. It's not doing donuts in your car. So I had a, I think, I think it was a 76 Datsun. Beautiful car. I, I've looked a bunch of times to try to replace it. It's really expensive now. Well, I, I tore that thing up in high school. I mean, I thought I was cool. I would drive like a maniac. We would do this thing. I, maybe this is a Nebraska thing. We'd do this thing called dipping. Anybody do dipping? That's not like tobacco. That's where you drive really fast and hit a dip to try to get airborne. Dipping. Now, I lived on Iowa Avenue, and we had some great dips on our street. And we, there's some video out there probably. It's on a VHS tape. Those things are like this big. I'm going to confess something to my parents if they're watching. One time we took this video camera from my parents' house. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the 90s. And we recorded ourselves dipping. And it was in my buddy Eric's blazer. And we broke that car so bad. That's, that's not wisdom. One more story that I just, I'm thinking about with my buddy Eric. So I was in this group in high school called YAD. Youth Against Alcohol and Drugs. And so my buddy Eric and I, we would dress up like clowns and go into elementary schools and teach and stuff. It was like we were, it was a good program. But on the weekends when all of our friends were partying, we would drive around and try to find where they were in the field and shoot BB guns or paintball guns at them, like from a distance, and just like, pop, 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 pop. Like, you know, we're like 100 yards away with an air rifle. And we're like, I think if you pump it 15 times, you can get that in there. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's going through a cornfield. Like, it's not wise. What if we would have hit some kid right in the face? I mean, this is, but this is wisdom. It's how we need to walk in this being foolish looks a lot like a 19-year-old boy. Now what happens is as we grow up and we become mature in the faith, we get further and further distance from that unwise youth. We get further and further distance from poor decision-making because that gap is called life experience. And you realize that junior bacon cheeseburgers four times a week doesn't add up to a thin waistline. It just doesn't. And so that gap is life experience. But the spirit-filled life closes that gap almost instantly. When we walk with the Lord, we are walking in wisdom. We are walking in devotion to the Lord. The spirit-filled life, less of me, more of Him, closes that gap. So we don't have to have all this negative life experience. But where do we look? The grace of God teaches us that we need to look up. Verse 13, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. This is when Jesus returns. 
So when I say we're at the brink of revival, that this experience of knowing Jesus, the, the church needs to be looking with anticipation of the glorious appearing of Christ, the second coming, the return of the King. That's, that's our motivation. That's where our vision needs to be. That's where we have, to, we have to live looking that way, that direction. That doesn't mean we freeze and stop and just stare waiting in the sky. That means we, we are motivated to, to anticipate the arrival of the King, the glorious appearing, appearing, which is the hope that drives us on this earth. That's where we look. God's grace teaches us that, that Jesus is Lord. You ever thought about salvation this way? We have this on our, on our website or, our, or the Alliance website. The doctrine of salvation is discussed in three tenses. Fancy word, justification, when everything's lined up. That's the past tense of salvation. It means we're delivered from sin's penalty. It means we're forgiven. We're made right with God. It's not like a Word document where you're, you know, you're in debt and all of a sudden everything gets all jumbled up. Like when we're right with the Lord, we're right. When we've asked for forgiveness and we've been filled with His Spirit, and we have been covered by the cross, we're made right with God. That we've been justified. We've been put in right relationship. Currently, we're being delivered from sin's power. Hey, has anybody in this room used to struggle with the sin 10 years ago, and now you don't? I, I can admit, I am one. Struggling with certain sins, and now I don't. That's the present reality of salvation. That's called sanctification. The Spirit of God is conforming you into the image of His Son, Jesus. You're be, being delivered from sin's power over your life right now. And this verse 13 talks about the future of salvation. Delivered from sin's presence. You realize at some point when we get a walk with Jesus in heaven, we won't have to talk about oil leasing and drilling rights and socialism in fact, we probably will be socialists in heaven. <laughs> we want to talk about those things because we're delivered from sin's presence with future hope. All right. A lot of words. Sorry. Verse 14, He gave us His life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Turn with me really quick to John chapter 1. I'll be done here in just a second. John chapter 1. 1 verse 12. This is one of the more profound verses that's just always rested on me. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. You're owned. You're part of His tribe. When you have salvation, you're His family. You're His child. You've been adopted. We have some really good friends. Family, really. We call them fam too. They're going through the process of adopting Easton. Uh, their son, that's, you know, I don't need to give you all the details. But it's been fun to watch them go through this process and, and their joy of grafting in this little boy, this sweet little child, into their household. To where he becomes theirs. Where they get to celebrate him as their own son. And say, you're mine. 
You belong to me. I'm responsible for you. When you have been saved, when you have salvation, when salvation comes to you, when you put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You belong to Him. You are part of His tribe. And as a part of that, He promises to cleanse you, to change you, And your response to that is being totally committed to doing good. Now here's the the final parting shot of this chapter from Paul. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. Titus, he's saying, you have authority to correct them when necessary. So don't let anyone disregard what you say. Don't let anyone disregard what you say, your leadership, your impact, your voice into life. You don't get to be marginalized. You're not marginalized. You are important. This is elevating the role of the pastor. Saying nobody should look down on you because of who you are, because you're young, because you're you're not as experienced, because you don't have this title. These are the true things that you need to speak. And salvation belongs to people. And it's your job as the pastor, as the shepherd, to communicate to share, to bring about this truth so that they can interact and have it and own it and have their life changed forever. So let no one marginalize you. Let no one, no one tell you to shut up. Now here's the deal. I'm going to confess something. I hate pastors. I've said it before. I'll say it again. But here's one of the ugly truths behind that when I say that. Every day, and I I can hear Joy just cringing when I say that. Every day, I say that is because of the experience I've had in the past where my voice has been marginalized. That's a response in my emotion and my sin to the way I've been wounded and hurt by other people. To say you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You'll never dress the part. You can't be so casual. You shouldn't be like that. It's the arrogance of older men talking down to a young pastor for 20 years, telling him over and over that he's not good enough. So I turn and look back at them and say, I hate you. Now, does Jesus want that from me? No. That's sin. That is sin at its core. That's my sin. Anger, rage, frustration, hatred towards pastors who've treated me poorly for generations. Because you're not good enough. When I read Paul write this to Titus, I don't have to be marginalized. Because I have a message that you need to hear, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And nothing under this sun is going to stop me from saying that. That's my sin, and I'm sorry for saying that for a number of years. You guys have only experienced it for a couple. We're working on it. We're loving. 
Let no one look down on you because you have something to say. Now, let's apply that to the church. I'm going to invite the worship team up and then we're going to close with this song. I'm not going to drift into some strange land doctrinally. But many times the church operates this way too. As a collective. To where we say things like, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't get involved in that conversation. Mm, Maybe we shouldn't have that sort of talk. Ooh, I don't want to be offensive. Oh, let's make sure that we take down all of these different things that could drive people nutty. We We want more people to come here to our church. The church, and this is my criticism of it, the church has tried so hard to stay popular that they've lost the good news, that we've lost the good news. That's why we're right on the front end of this revival. And it's not about being woke and saying we're not gonna we're gonna be cool to our neighbors. It's not about that. It's about preaching Christ and Christ alone. Because people are hungry for something that they can grab a hold of. And if they can't grab a hold of Jesus, we're all lost. And I'm tired of us pretending like we want to navigate the stream so that we create as least amount of turbulence as possible. Let's shake things up and preach gospel, good news, Jesus. Because Jesus is a problem to most people. Because why? You have to change. You have to do something different. You can't just live in your garbage. You have to stand in front of your church and say, this is a sin, and the reason I made it a joke for so long is because I'm sinful. And I need Jesus to fix this thing in me. That's revival. And it can start with 120 of us, and it can leak all over this town. Because we just need to proclaim Christ and be transparent about what's happening in our own lives. And say, yeah, we're struggling. Or I'm struggling. Or I'm angry. Or I have this sin. Or I have these things. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come to the altar. And I'm going to profess Christ and I'm going to claim Jesus. Because grace has come to all people. For salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. And so when I'm up in the middle of the night going, am I really saved? Heck yes, I'm saved! I love Jesus. And I'm not very good at it. I'm sure my wife thought I was going to say H-E double hockey stick. She was freaking out there for just a second. I can see it on her face. Oh, thank the Lord he didn't swear. You, I know you were like, Woo! My, my husband didn't just get himself fired. It's all right. Then I could just walk away and say, man, that church hates pastors too. <laughs> I'm saved. And Christ is cleansing me. Day after day. Day after day. That's the good news. And I'm going to stand here in faith looking for a hope that He's going to return and remove me from this dirty, sinful rock that's spinning out of control. It feels like. But guess who's on the throne? That's right. So here, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to stand. We're going to sing this closing song. Um, church family that's watching online, we're going to say goodbye to you. We're just going to have some altar time here. I'm glad the door closed, by the way. People can, you can leave.